Hello, listeners. Welcome to today's episode of Public Service Psychology Now. I'm your host, Dr. Tanisha Blue, and today we have joining us Dr. Mark Over, who is a clinical forensic psychologist at the University of Saskatchewan in research and practice. Good afternoon, Dr. Oliver. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Dr. Blue. I'm very well, thank you, and um, thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm I'm thrilled and humbled to be uh, to be a part of this show. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So to get a, get started, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, as a, as a clinical forensic psychologist, um, I completed a PhD in clinical psychology with a forensic emphasis at the University of Saskatchewan. And prior to becoming a faculty member there, so right now I'm a professor of of psychology and my my specialization being forensics, but I'm a general practitioner by trade. And I'm also at the University of Saskatchewan, so my alma mater, I was hired back as faculty. But before that, I worked in the field. So I worked with justice-involved youth, doing a lot of court-ordered evaluations and doing treatment services for youth with sex defenses and violent youth and that sort of thing. Um, And I also worked for Correctional Service Canada with... um, uh, federally sentenced men. That these are people who are serving sentences of two years or longer, doing a lot of assessment as well, like parole board evaluations, uh, violence risk assessments on intake, and that sort of thing. Did that. Uh, when I got hired as faculty, um, after I was practicing full-time in the field for about uh, four years or so, I could continue to supervise clinical placement. So first with youth, and I switched over to kind of full-time with, with, the, um, with the adult population. Um, then that's, I guess, me kind of clinically and professionally. I teach a course in psychological assessment. Um, just kind of being a big thing of what I do. Um, and my research really informs my practice and my practice informs my research. So a lot of my research is in applied topics in assessment and intervention and, and that sort of thing. But that's that's basically me. I mean, I've also uh, developed, uh, co-developed some risk assessment and treatment planning tools, which um, are used in different parts of the world. Actually, a lot of it's uh, used in a lot of U.S. states and so forth, particularly in um, uh, sexually violent predator proceedings and that sort of thing. So you've already so you've already used some languages a little bit different from what I've heard in the past. You bet. How that it sounds like you're using person-first language. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. Uh, you know, we're in, a, we're in an important paradigm shift uh, when it comes to the language that we use to characterize people who break the law, come in conflict with them. Uh, historically, we wouldn't think twice about using terms like offenders, young offenders, uh, delinquents, psychopaths, that sort of stuff. And just as the field has been moving away in, in other areas from using that, you know, referring to people in noun form, like, you know, the term schizophrenic, for instance, which is a label and dehumanizing, like people with schizophrenia. Uh, why not refer to people who break the law as people first and the bad behavior second and respect the dignity of people and use language that that, that reflects that? I find that when it's as much uh, an issue of mindset and attitude as, as it is anything else, and when you think of these people as people who break the law, and even people who've done really terrible things, but as people with rights and feelings and interests, the language tends to follow. So the thing that's kind of interesting is that in my old discourse, I wouldn't think twice about, you know, I would often use terms like rapist and child molester and that sort of thing. Um, I never actually called the men or worked with that. Like I never said, you're a child molester. 
even though the label might fit. And it's kind of interesting. Um, or I would never say to somebody, you're a psychopath, but I might use that language in my academic discourse. And so that changed suit. And there has been a movement within my field to use person first language. So people with psychopathy, people with psychopathic personality traits, um, uh, men, men with sex conviction histories, children, men who've sexually abused children, um, men with pedophilic interests, or people with pedophilic interests, and that sort of thing. So um, humanizing people, not condoning the behavior by any means, but um, being more neutral and descriptive than language and recognizing these as people who've done bad things, but as people ultimately. So that's uh, that's where that comes from. Thanks, Mark. I really, I really appreciate you sharing that and then describing the, the importance of humanizing a person. I wonder what that impact has been, what the impact of that has been for you working in this field to make that paradigm shift. And then also if you can see what that means for the impact on the field itself. It's a really, I mean, it's a really interesting question, Tanisha. I'm not, for me, um, it filters down, I guess, most directly in uh, in the training services that that I provide with students. So if I'm just supervising a practicum or I teach a course in psychological assessment, um, how I language it and how I encourage people to use the language in their reports to characterize their clients. And so it has that effect. Um, I find that when I use a humanizing lens and say a parole board evaluation, or say in a court document, if I'm testifying in court uh, on the matter, I find that that offers a humanizing lens and I think encourages the court um, to view these people as people, which I think they probably are, it's perhaps debatable to what extent, you know, um, some courts do or don't. So I think that the the effects I think are more, indir are, are more indirect, um, but I would like to think that when I use this language in my clinical discourse, it might encourage people, other service providers to view these people as people, if you will, and, and less in stigmatizing, in stigmatizing terms. Can you share with us um, some something about some things that you're working on right now with some your more recent research? Absolutely. So some things I'm working on right now. So probably one of the main things I've been working on um, is this pro is this project looking at protective factors and um, psychopathy. And you might think never never the point you shall meet, right? Like you have people who have got like people who are psychopathic are reviled in the media and it conjures up images of like Ted Bundy and Hannibal Lecter and so on and so forth, which are kind of extreme and sensationalized and sometimes fictitious scenarios. But people who have psychopathic characteristics are more prone to break the law. They um, are overrepresented in our prison systems in, in the US and in Canada and, and actually globally, like psychopathy is a construct, a clinical syndrome that does transcend culture. Um, some of the research I've done and in partner with some of my students and uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Steve Wong, um, has been looking at treatment change in, in people with psychopathic characteristics. And so seeing that if, some, if somebody who's psychopathic completes, say, a CBT-based program that's high intensity, um, targets their criminogenic needs, um, helps them learn pro-social behavior skills and harness their strengths in a pro-social way, can people with a lot of these traits make positive changes and move on to a life that is free of crime and violence or that is characterized by less crime and violence? And so some of the evidence suggests it is. Where I've taken this to another direction is 
looking at protective factors, so strengths and resiliencies in people who are psychopathic. And can these be nurtured or cultivated in them? And so I have a, a large program uh, of research rating uh, measure protective factors called the SAPROF, Structured Assessment of Protective Factors, and a clinical rating scale for psychopathy called Psychopathy Checklist Revised on a um, large group of men across a number of treatment cohorts who've attended uh, sexual offense treatment services in the Correctional Service of Canada, rating them pre and post on their protective factors to see if they change and to see if these changes are associated with decreases in recidivism. And what we found is, actually that is interestingly enough, that the, um, there is evidence that things like people who are psychopathic can increase their pro-social coping, um, if they can increase their, their, their level of self-regulation and control, if they can do other important things like, say, increase their motivation for pro-social behavior, get a job, have pro-social relationships and leisure, et cetera. Well, guess what? Like other people, they're less likely to get in trouble. So I think sometimes people forget that people who are psychopathic, psychopathy, they are people. And they have more in common with people than they than they don't than people who are not psychopathic because they are ultimately people first like they have rights and feelings and interests and they're not all a bunch of you know unintelligent knuckle-dragging people who just want to relentlessly offend I mean that kind of happens but ultimately that they're people first and for some of them the light bulb goes on upstairs and with enough services and um, with compassion and understanding and sometimes the rate of change is, is almost glacial, but, but but they can make changes and move on to better trajectories. So a big program of research looking at psychopathy and treatment change and protective factors and strengths specifically. And there's evidence to show that even high psychopathy persons have protective factors, that so these can be increased um, and that these can have risk-reducing qualities. So, so that, that's, that, that's one example, anyhow. That is so fascinating because you're right. There's a, um, even from what I remember from all the friends except from 10, 15 years ago, it's like mm -hmm. a, a psychopath, right? So in terms yeah. of like using that term, once exactly. you get that label, that means so many things and your trajectory is going in a certain direction and there's almost no you way bet. to do it. And I really like how your research also links back to what we were talking about earlier, this idea of when you start to think of people as as people and mm -hmm. sharing similar, when we start to think of how we can we share similar motivations, which then we want to be accepted, we want to be loved. We have, mm -hmm. there's so many motivations that we, because we are humans, we all have, we might have them to different degrees, but we all have. Mm -hmm. um, we can mm -hmm. start to talk about what ways we can help to strengthen a person and strengthen some of those to make them um, more pro-social and get them involved in a positive way in society. You bet. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's funny to think about that way, but it's kind of like you think, well, you know, if somebody is psychopathic, do they need love and acceptance and, and, and empathy and kindness? And the answer is yes. They might be bad at giving it, but they actually need it as much as I mean, I'm not, don't, don't take me wrong. Like, I don't want to be naive or Pollyannish about it. I'm not saying that you're going to turn these people into Mother Teresa or anything, but the reality is, is that these people do need kindness and compassion and empathy as much. And as um, 
a framework or foundation for helping them to make behavior change. Like you, you do need that component. Um, and, and in time, I mean, I dare say sometimes they get better at reciprocating it too. Although that's not necessarily the, the primary goal of treatment. It's interesting though, because as you were talking, I just assumed that that would be one goal of treatment, but it's really not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 You would think so, but well, so um, as you think about one other thing that I know that you've been working on or that I've read about this Aboriginal justice, can you yes. talk about that? Yes, I'd love to. Um, and this uh, also, I guess, gets right at the heart of um, of the paper that I was so humbled to receive this recognition for anyways, uh, looking at the structural properties. Yeah, um, Indigenous people are highly overrepresented in Canada's justice system. So we have quite a large Indigenous population across Canada. Um, you do as well in, 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 in the U.S. and Indigenous persons are also overrepresented as well, along with other ethnocultural minority groups in the, in the U.S. prison system and up here as well. But uh, uh, a large light has, has shown front and center on the Indigenous peoples who make up 4% uh, of our general population and about 30% of the population for our, in our federal correctional department. And in our provincial and territorial prison systems, it's pretty similar as well. Like there's this overrepresentation. Where this research came from, um, I guess, in principle, if a group is overrepresented in a justice system, we should make sure that the psychometric properties of the tools we use translate to that group. If we're going to be using it for them, right? Like this is kind of cross-cultural equivalence 101, which we learn in graduate school with other measures, right? And, you know, we learn measures like the MMPI and the waste and stuff in graduate school and uh, and tackle tough and thorny questions. And there are never clear answers about cross-cultural equivalence and that sort of thing. But it also applies to risk assessment tools. So basically structured checklists used for evaluating risk and dangerousness, uh, risk for future violence and crime. There was um, a legal matter, ongoing legal matter in Canada, where a man by the name of, um, of Jeffrey Ewart, this is um, in, the, in the public legal domain in Canada, had sued the government of Canada, and specifically Correctional Service of Canada, for using risk instruments against him, which he argued were culturally biased because he was a man of, um, of Métis descent. And he argued that... Um, uh, and I guess just for those unfamiliar with the terms, essentially it, it, it is legal declaration uh, of Indigenous status, but it's basically mixed European and First Nations um, ancestry uh, for people who are called um, called Métis or who have Métis, although it's a, it is a legal designation for someone to be carrying a Métis card to have that designation. Um, so he had, he had um, been serving a double sentence, uh, I guess a concurrent life sentence for murder and attempted murder. These are sexually motivated homicides or attempted homicides. He had been in jail for about 30 years, had never applied for parole. Um, and he, his argument was that there's no point in him applying for parole because he was characterized as, as high risk by these instruments. The decks were stacked against him and it was just this sort of self-fulfilling waste of time. Why would he bother if he's already been labeled as high risk? He'd also been labeled as, as, as a psychopath because Harris checklist had been rated on him. And he had a high high score on that as well. And so saw it as being a fruitless um, venture. And he had sued the government a number of times, but in this one instance, he went up and he actually won. Um, went to appeal, it was overturned on appeal and dismissed, um, then went up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And their final ruling, and it was a split decision, was that it wasn't inappropriate to use the instruments with him and that his basic charter 
charter rights were not violated. But the Supreme Court didn't think that the Correctional Service of Canada had done sufficient research to interrogate their instruments, to evaluate their instruments and their appropriateness for use with them. Supreme Court of Canada thought it was appropriate to, to use them because it's better to use something structured than not, but that the government needed to get better at evaluating its properties of these tools. So where a lot of this came in is that I authored a tool that was actually at the center of this. There were a number of tools that were impugned in this controversy, and mine was one of them because it was it was evaluated on him. Um, the irony is actually he was evaluated as moderate low risk on, on, on my tool, funny enough. Um, this is again in the in the judicial report, but this isn't here or there. Uh, but what this really incentivized me to do was just to I had the data to do it, so I got an IRB certificate to do um, just uh, stratify the groups and examine the properties across ethnocultural groups and Indigenous persons and white majority non-Indigenous persons. A couple of the, of the issues that have been coming up. One of the biggest issues is like, do these predict their targeted outcome equivalently across groups? Like. If something is designed to predict future sexual violence, does it have equal predictive accuracy, say, in, you know, white criminally sentenced men with sex offense histories as it does Indigenous men with sex offense histories? Another issue that has come up is, um, do, do these risk instruments measure these constructs in the same way? Do they have structural equivalence? So if you have a sexual violence risk instrument, does it have the same latent structure and evaluate and assess the same constructs, say, and white men versus indigenous men with sex offense histories. And the predictive accuracy piece has received a lot of attention and I've done a lot of work. And I have a, I also have a, a kind of a parallel program of research looking at that as well as some stuff with protective factors. But looking at structural equivalence or the structural properties has been under recognized. And that's actually what I did for the psych services paper was I did a multi-group confirmatory factor analysis. And I said, well, Let's take this dynamic instrument that um, has been the, the source of controversy and used a lot with Indigenous persons in Canada. And we had a large data set based on three samples of men who'd gone through Correctional Service Canada sex offense treatment programs. They had pre-treatment and post-treatment ratings on this measure. They had all had sex offense histories. I had um, close to 400 Indigenous persons and close to 700, again, majority white um, uh, persons. Uh, on which to conduct this multi-group confirmatory factor analysis. And what I found was that broadly the same factors emerged. And so when I imposed increasing model constraints, I found that there were kind of three underlying domains that emerged. A domain that looked at sexual deviance, like atypical sexual interests, uh, paraphilias, preoccupation. There's a general criminality domain, which would include things like impulsiveness, aggressiveness, substance use problems, et cetera. And the domain that we call treatment responsivity, which is kind of like attitudes and cognitions, level of insight and that sort of thing. We found the fit indices indicated good fit um, between across ethnocultural groups, even when we did things like holding the factor loading concept uh, constant, holding um, um, uh, item intercepts or thresholds constant, what's called scalar equivalence or scalar invariance. We had been able to um, attain that with, with pretty good fit overall. The model in the end was kind of a compromise between parsimony and maximizing fit. But uh, what we found was that the, these had we these three underlying domains emerged, they converged between the groups, and it suggested that the measure was identifying and measuring similar constructs across ethnocultural groups. So the implications for this is that, you know, for treatment planning, for risk assessment, what areas to prioritize and that sort of thing. But um, 
that, that, that was a big question that kind of came up right there was, you know, what's the structural equivalence? And then we examined the predictive properties. And I, and I can elaborate a little bit further on that. But that's just to, I guess, long, long answer, hence my, my enthusiasm for this, but give you a bit of a thumbnail sketch about that project. That is a, it's an exciting project and it has a, it sounds like because they've been using this other measure for so long, mm -hmm. it has a reason mm -hmm. to have a significant impact in the justice yeah. system. Yeah. Yes, she bet, because it had been used for, for a while, but nobody had examined it. And there were other tools as well that had been examined, that had been used, and they vary in their, in their level of um, research attention that they've, that they've received, so... I think one of the most exciting things that emerged out of this, though, was that I examined changes in these domains to see if they're associated with decreases in recidivism. And what we found was that, that across both ethnocultural groups, that um, when men made changes in each of these factor domains, um, when we control for baseline risk, it actually predicted decreased sexual and violent recidivism. So when people made treatment-related changes, whether they're of Indigenous ancestry or not, they were less likely to come back for new sexual or violent offense. And that's what I find the most exciting thing is that when people make changes, they're less likely to come back when they receive evidence and forum services. And what was cool is that the, the, the tool was capable of capturing that. Now, it's cool the tool was capable of capturing that, but what's even more meaningful to me is that when risk changes, people are less likely to come back. I mean, I think it's just a testament to the services. In any case, the system's working, if you will, even, even all the problems that it has. Absolutely. And that, that brings us so much hope, right? Because to know mm -hmm. that not only not only to know that treatment can have an impact that we can see the mm -hmm. outcome, but to know that it can be picked up on this measure and that can mm -hmm. be reassuring to the person, the practitioner can be reassuring to the system that something has happened. You bet. Yes, absolutely. So the, the interesting implications of this is that people often don't think along these lines, but um, the notion that not using something that's structured and that can measure change, you might actually be doing more harm than good because there's been a lot of controversy that's kind of popped up. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you recall, you know, the early works of Paul Meal and the statistical actuarial debate, right? Which is kind of a, which is kind of a non-debate, but it's really been front and center in forensics. I mean, if it applies to other areas like, you know, vocational psychology and personnel screening and, you know, other, you know, police recruitment and educational decisions, et cetera, why would actuarial be any less relevant in other or important domains like criminal justice, for instance, right? So uh, I, I would argue that when you use something that's structured with good psychometric properties, you're probably doing the clients a, a much greater service than if you're not. Yeah, that's a really great point because they're, they're there is all of this debate about the historical the historical development and the processes that led to the development. And so mm -hmm. there's a question about should we, of course, should we use these tools and, and in what way should we use these tools and the science behind the tools? But it sounds like you're advocating for, we don't throw it all out. We start with what we know and then we build mm -hmm. something that's more structured because the 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 alternative might actually be worse. Yes, uh, yes, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the alternative might be worse. And I think it's as much how it, an instrument is used is equally, if not more important 
than the substance of that instrument itself. So you want to make sure the instrument has appropriate validity and reliability. But there's a lot of professional discretion and responsibility that goes into using that instrument because any instrument otherwise can be misused. I mean, in Canada, we have this horrible legacy of intelligence testing being used to identify people who are cognitively sub-average and then forcing them into being forced sterilization and so forth, which is absolutely horrific. I mean, eugenics, right? You know, and we have a history of that in Canada. And sometimes Indigenous children shipped off to residential schools, being given cognitive testing and being involuntarily sterilized. Like absolutely horrific. But to say that we should then abandon intelligence testing, you know, outright would be, you know, uh, a short-sighted conclusion, even though it's been absolutely horrifically, horrifically used. So um, there's a huge amount of responsibility with using these measures and how we use them when there's uh, responsibility and discretion and acknowledging their strengths and limitations, um, I think matters a great deal. I think that if there's potential to improve upon instruments in certain ways, um, I think that's an important direction to go, and there has been some dialogue in our field about that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a really important point. This idea of how it's used is the mm -hmm. is is what we're going to do with the data and what we're going to do with that information. Mm -hmm. Are we doing it to help a person, help society? Are we? What's our? What's what's the goal? And um. And, and I really, anyway, I really just appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and thank you for that. For me, it's a tool like the one that I've been involved in developing. It's called the Violence Risk Scale Sexual Offense Version of VRSSO. Uh, there's, one, there's one objective. It's preventing sexual violence. That's what it's about. It's about using the tool to prevent sexual violence. Yeah. And whether that means releasing people who are a man who can be safely managed in the community and providing appropriate supports and resources or keeping people in custody and providing more services and supports and resources because their risk is not manageable in the community and involves preventing sexual violence and it involves managing risk and preventing sexual violence and helping people as much in the process and doing that yeah so no matter what the outcome is that the hope for outcome is that people get services that they so desperately need, but the question is where they really receive them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and as so much as people are willing to engage, some people are not willing to engage services or they're not ready right away. So the, the tool actually gets at people's readiness to change as well. It, it involves a modified application of the stages of change model, you know, Prochaska's work and so forth. And so some people are kind of stuck in pre-contemplation and kind of spinning their wheels and in denial or little or no insight. And people sit there a while before they move along the continuum of change, or maybe we can use motivational interviewing to help salt the oats a little bit, so to speak. Well, Mark, this is a really fascinating conversation, and um, what I what I'm taking away from all of this is that your work has not it, ha it has a, a large it, may, it has the potential to impact society um, significantly. But most importantly, I really hear the hope mm -hmm. and the hope and the desire for a better future in mm -hmm. all that we're doing. So thank you for sharing. You betcha. Well, thank you, Tanisha. And that always is kind of the the message at the end of it is that there is there there is hope for you know um, 
involves a belief in the redeemability of people. And again, not, not this naive optimism, but it's a cautious optimism in believing in the redeemability of people. If you give them the right conditions and um, enough opportunities, um, a lot of people will make changes. You know, not everybody will, but a lot of people will. And, and oftentimes um, this can be quite meaningful and have societal impacts. I like that. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Well, you thank you listeners today. Um, thank you for listening to us in this wonderful conversation um, with myself, Dr. Tanisha Blue, and Dr. Mark Oliver. Um, next, please join us next time for the next episode of Public Service Psychology Night.